Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all viewers from all over the world. Well, today I'm, I'm really pleased to announce that we have Lucas Perodin. Lucas is, uh, is definitely a, a super inspiring visionary with a, a lot to share and that we will hear over the next hour. On the future of commerce, Lucas, who currently works uh, at Facebook, as head of HR and VR, focusing on the EMEA region. He doesn't only have the Facebook perspective, he's also been on the other side. 20 years, more than 20 years, a lot of that time spent at uh, HP. So, so you have different perspectives to bring and that, that's super helpful. Lucas, great to have you. Let me start by asking you, how are you and where are you? Well, thank you for having me, uh, and thank you for everyone to be logging. I am in uh, London right now. Uh, I'm doing well. I mean, just like every one of us, um, dealing with you know the pandemic, and so there are good times and bad times. Uh, I guess the uh, positive side is that as we're all going through the same thing at the same time, there's a lot more mindfulness and empathy. Uh, so you know, unlike everyone, good days, bad days. But when I have bad days, I remind myself that my life is actually good. So it takes a bit of rationalization. I hope everyone on the call is doing well. And uh, and and then in bad days, there's always the guitar. I see in the background. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I turn the neon light and I play the guitar, and I feel like I'm in a club. So exactly, that's my way of, of coping with it. Exactly. Great. Good. Good to hear. Hey, Lucas. Um, we we're going to talk about commerce. And, 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 and obviously, um, I think that the reason I, I was so looking forward to this, because it's so clear that commerce is, is where I know the perfect storm is happening, but, but I'd rather say everything is happening. Everything's, everything comes together in the space of commerce. But we'll talk about data. We'll talk about tech and IT. Uh, we'll talk about creativity. We'll also talk about not only marketing, but also sales and IT coming together. And uh, so, so for those overseeing this or involved in this, it's, it's such a multidimensional space where so much what used to be silos or different specialism all need to be integrated and come together. But so let, let's start with, with talking about What's going on? What's, where are we coming from? You know, from, from a world that's, that's all about brick and mortar and where are we going to? I know you talk about different phases. Can you talk us through that uh, a little bit? Yes, indeed. And I have to say it's incredibly complex. So what is happening is it's a very complex topic that has a very high rate of change. So something that's very complex and that changes very fast. So. I have to say to everyone, if you have a hard time keeping up with it, you are not the only one, everyone. And, you know, and I work at Facebook and I sometimes struggle as well. And so now let's talk about 
where we are, what's happening, and what is going to happen. The, the, the way I like to talk about this is set up a um, kind of a mental framework. We need to think about you know, how customers behave, so how they are still shopping, how they are increasingly shopping, so some things are changing already, we are seeing it, how they are starting to shop, some new behavior, and how they will shop. And think about these four pillars as a, as a continuum. One thing I will say upfront is that there is an evolution of commerce, but one behavior doesn't replace the other. They will all coexist over time. And that makes it, I'm sorry, slightly more complex every time. It doesn't make it simple all the time, but we can cope with it. So let's talk about how people still shop, uh, brick and mortar. People still buy in physical stores. I mean, the, the, the consensus statistic is around 70% outside COVID of everything bought is bought in physical retail. But it doesn't mean that physical retail has been a stable uh, purchase point. Like the, the role of physical retail in the value chain, in the customer journey, is actually evolving as we speak. So it's not because it's been around for a long time, that it's a stable behavior. What has been happening basically is that the conversion rate at physical retail is twice what it was 10 years ago. So when people show up in a store, they have a, a propensity to buy twice as high as what it was 10 years ago. Why? Because they actually browse online before, they do a lot of research, and by the time they show up in a store, they're actually here to buy. And this has, has a lot of implications. Uh, implications being having the right inventory at the right price and being consistent in the physical store with the experience that was served online before is incredibly important. Back to your point, uh, marketing and sales need to be really in sync in this motion, more and more. And that is going to carry on. Uh, people hardly ever in the next two, three years, you will never show up at the physical store without knowing that what you want to buy is actually there. There is very little chance for substitution. Once you go there, you probably are very, very likely to buy what you came here for, that exact product. So the implication for brands is the marketing strategy are full funnel. You can, you can do your TV, your at-home, your digital. If your digital is consistent with your in-store and you have some channel marketing, co-op marketing happening in-store, in-store consistent, you are probably going to sell the brand that you've advertised for. So all your brand work, brand value creation is paying off a lot in that channel. The other implication is that the consistency, so you need to make sure that what you advertise is, is in stock. And you know, you talked about this earlier, channel marketing and sales are not always in sync and supply chain as well. But now it's really, really important that what you advertise is actually purchasable within the purchase location that your go-to-market decisions were made in. That's incredibly important right now. Pricing consistency, transparency is there, it's rainbow. But that go-to-market is, but that sales motion still exists, it's still the majority. It's probably still going to shrink, but it's great for marketers, it's great for sales because once you've done the upper funnel work, you probably are going to sell. So your brand value realizes really well in that channel. Now, how people are increasingly buying is e-commerce. What are the big differences? Number one, you don't buy as much every time you buy. Why? Because when you go to a mall or to a supermarket, you have to take your car. You have to mobilize yourself. It's a very big investment of your life. Once you're there, you go and buy what you went to buy, and you also buy things around it because you, while you're here and you've made all that effort, you are going to amortize that effort. Well, the consequence for brands is 
the average basket size is bigger, the average margin is much bigger. We tend to buy more things around what we initially intended to buy in physical stores than in e-commerce. Why? Because in e-commerce, it's in your pocket. You know what you need right here, right now, you can get it and purchase it. If you need something else in two hours, you can actually pull it out again and buy it again. So it's very laser focused. So the average basket size is lower and the average margin is lower because usually things you sell around the main purchase have more margin. So you know you have to factor this in your cost of acquisition of the customer, you know, how much you pay for getting your customer. Big impact for the brands in e-commerce. E-commerce is dominated by big e-commerce platforms. Um, Amazon, Alibaba, JD.com in China. I mean, Amazon, I guess everyone's very, very familiar with. And what happens is that the brand strategies are not full funnel like in e-commerce. They, they are bottom of the funnel focus. So you need to convert once the customer is there. How do you know a, a customer is in market? I go and search for a product online, whatever, you know, on Amazon, on Ali, on Google. And then there are tons of signals are being sent. Lucas is looking for that product. And then there are a number of technology that comes to play and try to show me the best adapted product to my need. And if I have a high affinity, I'm going to buy it, right? Once I do this, I'm going to a shopping cart. And what has happened is that in that shopping cart, I'm going to be showed a number of other similar products. These products, they might not have a brand that I know, but there are 3,000 people just like me that are telling me that this product is five stars and the one I wanted to buy for which I saw the advertising is 4.8 stars. Yeah. So I'm going to buy that product from a brand I've never heard of based on the recommendation of my peers. And all of the brand's value creation investment is going to the drain because the brand that brought the customer to the purchase point and the brand who sells are a different one. And there's a, there's a tremendous substitution potential. So these go-to-market are very sales efficient, but they are very decremental to brand value. So you always have to think in your go-to-market strategy, you know, how many units do I want to sell? What's my long-term brand value? And how do I balance all of this? And once again, this is about sales and marketing. How, how big is that? Can you quantify the difference in convergence to the brand that was intended to buy to another brand in the, let's say, in the physical shelf versus the digital shelf on the platform? There are no official figures and these platforms are operated in silos. They do not share that data. It's it's a lot less open, like um, you know, the the internet platforms such as Google or Facebook are a lot more open and data sharing than the vertical platforms. But two things we know: it's north of twenty percent. That's some estimate we get, and that trend is one of the fastest growing trends. So okay. brand substitution is is it's twenty right now. It will probably be a third, if not more, soon enough. So massively significant yes. and impactful. Clearly. Very significant. Yeah. I mean, we can, I guess we can all relate to this. Like if you're on Amazon Prime. Oh, I, I recognize it for myself. I mean, it's, 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 and I think most of the viewers as well, we've been in that place and we have acted like you described. I was just wondering if, you know, what's the weight? What's like, like how big is this? But, but that's a clear answer. Uh, but please go on, uh, Lucas. So these channels are very sales efficient, but they have their own brand value to their customers, which is, I will, I will remove the marketing 
messaging and I will make it practical and peer-to-peer -peer estimation. So the brand value gets crushed in there. So yeah. you really have to balance it. Now, so this is how people are increasingly buying with COVID obviously a lot more right now. Of course, people will go back to stores. I have to say one thing. Physical retail is here to stay. It's over-deployed right now. It has more share than, than it will have in the future, but people will go to malls and supermarkets. There is, a, there is a, a human connection. There is something about retailtainment, entertainment of going to retail that is going to stay. It's not going to work. So now what is starting to happen? What's the new way people, and we are seeing indication, and that, that is going to disrupt the world of commerce massively. Discovery commerce. What is discovery commerce? It's a bit of an esoteric term. It's tended social commerce. So if you hear discovery commerce, what it means is you're buying on a social network. Why is it called discovery commerce? The very important consequence of moving to discovery commerce is that intent capture is disappearing. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Remember, when you go to a mall, you take your car. I know that you're going to buy because you're going in your car going there, but I'm sure you are going to get that. E-commerce, you start searching. So you are sending a signal of intent. I am in market. I'm interested in that product, that category, and then start serving me proposals. Discovery commerce is a place where because you spend a lot of time on social network, I, I was reading a stat just yesterday. Being on social network is the fourth thing in our lives that yeah. we'll spend. I've got children between eight and 22. I know. We are going to eat, watch TV and do social. That's yeah. the four things. We will do the most time in our lives. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. no shadow of doubt there. Yeah. So people are in social. I'm in social, I'm, everyone's in social. 1.8 billion is the, per week people engage with, with Facebook properties as an example, that's the official number. And so because you're in social a lot, you send a lot of signals all the time, what you like, what your friends like, what you're interested in. And what happens is that the, the algorithm knows so many things about you that it will start showing you products for which you have not yet had that conversation with yourself that you need that product. You haven't like internalized the fact that you need that product, but you send so many signals that you're actually ready for it. And so you are going to discover that product in social environment, social uh, uh, network environment, and you are going to convert as you discover it, right? That's called discovery commerce because the funnel is completely collapsed. By the time it serves you an advertising, you make awareness, consideration, preference, purchase in the same millisecond. You're like, oh, oh I this is a great product. That's a great offer. I'm going to buy it. Now, is everyone going to do this? No. But what I can tell you is that iteratively with the test and learn capacity of algorithms, it will start serving you more and more precise products and the catalysis, like the chemical reaction of you deciding that you want to buy this will, will increase in frequency and it will increase in quantity. Because I remember uh, Yuval Harari, who you undoubtedly heard, or hopefully heard of, who wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus. What he writes is where it's going that actually the big platforms know things about myself that, that I don't even know. Like I might be gay, the, the platform knows it because it registers my behavior, 
and, and knows that it correlates with sexual preference that I'm not even aware or, or ready to admit for myself. That's a really interesting and, 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 and in a way scary concept uh, at the same time. Uh, that's obviously not the only, only the case with sexual preference, but with all things where decisions come into place, like buying decisions. Do you recognize that? I mean, you work for a big platform. No, I think so. The example you're giving is um, right now is a fictional example. It cannot do this. It's not going to be doing this for a long time. What it does, though, it formalizes things that we probably haven't internally formalized as much, but we know it. So the reason why I am seeing this nice design board, so I'm seeing design boilers on Instagram every day for the last three days. I haven't looked for them. <laughs> I haven't told them, but I'm doing some home improvement in my kitchen right now. I've been looking for things, looking at design examples. So it's, I have formally expressed some kind of interest in the field. I know I'm interested in the field, but the algorithm is actually very, very good. Like they served me, you know, not like this morning, this brand. I really love this design. I don't know this brand. It's quite expensive. I don't know if it's worth the price, but it's getting very precise. Like, so that's yeah. where we are. That's where we are. So there's, there's a funnel of indicators that I have formalized and there are some more details, product level things that I haven't formalized that is going to get for us. But that's, that's, that's very good news for brands, I'm assuming. Yes. Versus what you just described in, in, in current, the current e-commerce on the Amazons and the Alibabas of this world. Indeed. So discovery commerce uh, is, I like to call it the revenge of the marketeers because discovery and purchase happen at the same time. So the underlying theme of sales and marketing alignment in discovery commerce, huge. Basically, you need to think about your marketing as being shoppable. Your assets need to be shoppable. You, you optimize for shoppability of your assets, but you still need to provide your brand message, your preference message, and your purchase message in the same moment. So the formats will change. There, there will be iterations around the formats and things like that. But the marketers have a unique chance to create brand value and create transactions at the same time. It's, it's, an, it's a revolution. Hey, so, and, and where does uh, some people talk about conversational commerce into play? Conversational commerce is another branch I was going to come to. So you have physical, e-com, discovery, conversational commerce. Conversational commerce. Is that, like, do you mean like it's a step afterwards? Like in, in, in the, the. It's a parallel step. It's a parallel step with discovery yeah. commerce. Yeah. And, and, you know, the remember the news things will coexist. There will be more options and things will coexist. So conversational commerce is, is something that, you know, and you've probably heard about um, a bunch of movements that have been done on, on the website, uh, WhatsApp or Messenger side of things lately. Uh, it's been in the news. Um, that will happen. People are on, they, we spend time on social networks, including uh, messaging apps. And we think as consumers, a lot of people are saying that it's the best way to interact with them. That's the one they're more, most comfortable with. And it's a way they would like to engage with brands. So the thing is, you need to work on the experience. Once again, it will be about, as for discovery commerce, what is the tone of voice? What is the relevant type of interactions? What is the format? And more importantly, and the biggest challenge in conversational commerce, what's the service level? 
So think about TV as one to millions. I'm a brand. I can talk to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions at the same time of people with the same message being broadcast at the same time. Digital, I have 50 assets or 20 assets for a campaign. And then the algorithm is going to choose, depending on who it's talking to, what's the best combination of assets. One too many, but more personalized. Conversational commerce, one-to-one. If somebody messages my brand, who is going to respond on the other side? What are they going to talk about? How consistent is my messaging going to be versus my overall brand messaging? Or am I ensuring the right experience that all the brand lifting work that has been done or Carfana doesn't get destroyed through that interaction? Lots of work to be done. Uh, I think we're gradually going there. I mean, some, a lot of things happened during COVID, but uh, there is a lot of automation being worked on, on how to respond fast to customer, make sure you can feed your catalog in there, your pricing, relate to other of your online and offline properties. So it's being worked on right now as we speak. I, I can see that why you said, and I like that, the revenge of the brand marketer, this, this whole uh, discovery and conversational commerce. And as, as a... As a brand person, I can totally identify with the, the wealth of opportunities. However, just maybe to ground ourselves a little bit uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves, at this moment in e-commerce, um, and you talk about the algorithms that know our preferences and so on, why do the algorithms so, so often still get it wrong? If I bought, bought a toilet seat, why am I being chased, you know, keeping on being bombarded with toilet seats that, you know, it's fixed. Thank you very much. What, what's happening there? People just, consumers don't understand, nor do I in all honesty. Okay, so there are many things behind that phenomenon, but let me just talk about two. So number one, you remember when you say, um, it's a bit scary, it knows a lot of things about me that I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, the toilet seat example is, uh, toilet paper example is, is a good one that, you shouldn't be too worried right now because you know the level of sophistication is not is not as far from being as advanced as than what we described. Um, there is something to be said about vertical and horizontal integration. So let me step back here. We as marketeers and salespeople always try to do what I call horizontal integration. We try to get data from all the customer touch points we have. So Google, Facebook, TV. Uh, display networks, whatever, in-store, and then have a single view of the customer. And we have that single view of the customers. We can see where they've been touched with what. We know when they're transacted in a single point, and so we shouldn't, we, we stop uh, uh, stimulating them. Well, fortunately, all of that is not available to the uh, vertical platform. So when you optimize for Google and you feed Google, Google and you sell in-store, you're not telling Google that you've sold in-store, and it's a good thing you know, GDPR, data privacy, all that thing. So this will create inefficiencies because there is silo and the silos are here because we don't openly share customer data with everyone all the time and it's a good thing. The drawback is the quality of the targeting and personalization is not optimal and some other channels will keep on serving ads for somebody that is thought to be in market by the algorithm but isn't because the main information that that person has purchased hasn't reached the algorithm. It's a good sign around data privacy and data silo for the general public. The one thing I will add, if you allow me, is that horizontal integration is one of the hardest thing to do. So 
if you can do it, it pays off really, really well, but it takes a lot of investment, a lot of knowledge and a lot of time to get there. I think a lot of the companies out there, including you know, me and me and some of my previous roles, I've tried to stitch everything together and put tech to you know DMPs, I mean you name it, you name it. And the only thing we achieved is spend more money and not being quite sure about how relevant we were and what you're describing was still happening. So it's just really hard to do. So, so listen, you've talked about uh, basically the, the physical shelf, the digital shelf. You've talked about discovery and conversational commerce. Before we go into a peek into the future and you're ahead of AR and VR, and my guess is that's where the future is. Uh, otherwise, probably you, you wouldn't be here and talking. But again, we'll talk about what's ahead of us. But let's, let's stick for a little bit with what's happening now. And if there's one thing happening now, I, I think it's about integrating. It's about, and, and I just uh, heard, read about the example in, in China where um, Burberry is working with Tencent. They, they, they're sharing data. And so what you can do as a customer of Burberry, you can schedule a visit to the store and in a fitting room. And based on the data and the preferences that, uh, that, that Tencent have, there's already a range of clothes that, that, that you will probably like. So that's a, that's a really nice integration. Nike is doing great stuff with you know, integrating e-commerce and, 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 and the physical store. What do you see? What, what's the big thing happening there? Is that, is that where things are in the short term going? Like, would your advice be to people, that's where you need to invest because that's where things are going? How, how do you look at that? Huge topic. So... Short answer, I'll, I'll spoil the end first and then I'll explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Why? Wow, that's, that's, that's an interesting one. I'll now we get some questions on that one. There yeah. are a number of mega trends. There's a whole other mega trend that would deserve another hour of discussion around signals and privacy. And that mega trend is actually making a number, and back to the algorithm intelligence point we were making earlier that is making things go backward and the ability, so to protect privacy, we have to share less data, let people choose more what data they want to share and there are more silos in data. And that is going to prevent or at least slow down before it's reshuffle this type of initiative. You can do it in China. I'm not a big expert of data privacy laws in China, to be honest with you. To do this among a top online platform and a, and a retailer is probably possible, but it's, it's very complicated. So I wouldn't jump on this right now. But but what I mean, sorry, just in terms for one second. I mean, I'm a consumer, and yes, I heard about privacy, and so in all honesty, I've never read the cookie thing. I, I always click because I just have no time for it, like physically, no time. But if if that saves me, you know, all the time, and I go, uh, I'm not a great Burberry buyer, but say I would be. Um, Aren't people just happy to sacrifice a ton of their data and, and privacy for convenience? Isn't that like the big trade-off? Um, so you and I, yes, and probably most of the people on the call. Uh, but we know that we are not we are not the general population. We're under one percent. We are, you know, you have CMOs on the call. You have people that have been in big corporation roles for a long time, and you know, I work at Facebook, so we kind of all live in a bubble. It doesn't, it's right now, it doesn't sound like it's the general population's preference, number one. And two, I think, 
I probably don't have the answer to that question, to be honest. We are out to find out in the coming months and, and years. We know the cookies going away. We know that you know a number of things changing in the industry around opt-in, opt-out are changing third-party uh, cookie data in a way that it will actually vanish over time. And there will be other ways to, to share your data. So we don't have the answer, but to your initial point, if you're a brand, should you invest in this right here, right now? I think you should probably wait to see where this settles to make sure the investment you're making are worth your while. And but, that much Lucas, but, but I mean, it's painful. So I, I love my bookstore here in Zeist, a small town in the Netherlands where I live. And, and it's just painful. To, it always pisses me off. But I must admit, I also sometimes do it myself. I go on my phone and check the book that they are having. Um, I typically don't do it because, uh, because I might get it for one euro cheaper. But this whole idea of people being on their phone, and you said they go to shops, it's, uh, they go well prepared because they did their research. They often do research in the stores. Isn't that also a little bit the integration that's, that's happening? So that's, that's different. And it is very important. I really like where we are right now because uh, it's in the detail. So sharing data is one thing. The other thing that needs to happen back to the point around it really tight integration between sales and marketing is necessary. What you need to do is make sure you advertise something that you can sell. And these things that you can sell, you have a product information management system that says, where are they available? And then I can target you and tell you where it's available in a the most convenient way, as opposed to having a specific assortment in that specific store for you where I would need your data for that. So yes, there is integration that solves for this and removes friction. And like I say, two years from now, you will not go anywhere unless you are sure yeah. what you are looking for is there. And the way yeah. we can achieve this is supply chain feeding, what inventory is where on a real-time basis so that the real-time ads that are being served to me are having the check that what I'm being what I'm being told I should buy is actually available to me in a frictionless manner in physical store. This is where my preference is. I, I think great, great uh, segue to, 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 the, to the fourth stage where things will go in the future. And, and, cool. and we're getting questions also uh, from the audience about they're keen to hear that, AR, VR. Uh, I just learned in our preparation call that actually the experts call it XR, all yes. the R's uh, together. Um, so, so let's talk XR, the XR shelf. What's to come? Let me talk about the end state. The end state is there's a race of technology to replace this with that. So Really happening? I mean, it's like flying cars to me. They've been promised, you know, since I know. Uh, the, the beginning of the, the, the previous decade or something. And uh, the same with glasses. I've never seen somebody wear an uh, so Google glasses. So like, if you want to talk about XR, assume that the underlying thing that is happening is we are going from a main computing interface that's a mobile phone yeah. to a main computing interface that's an augmented reality pair of glasses. Okay. There's a race, there's a technological race. So I work with... Um, I'm not very smart, but there's a bunch of smart people working with us, rocket scientists. They are telling me it's happening. They're like, we don't know when exactly, but it is happening. Okay. They know they have problems to solve for which they don't know what the solution is, but they're working on it really, really hard. 
Once you've integrated this, what does it mean? And stepping back, not just for advertising or marketing or anything, it changes the way humans and computers interface. You use the interface through a phone, that small screen, you have to pull it out of your pocket, search things. Now, augmented reality, you are immersed into the experiences. I'll illustrate this with another example, uh, news. Not, not ads, but news. Football game. You want to see the uh, summary of last night football game? Yeah. Well, you might see it here, and Lionel Messi might be next to you. Lionel Messi, for those who don't know, is one of the biggest football fans in the world. Sitting next to you, kicking that free kick and scoring that goal, and you feel like you're in that Barcelona stadium on the pitch with him, and that's how you live this. The emotional engagement you have with that news is 10 times, 100 times the one you had when you were watching it on your phone, right? That's happening. Now, let me take another example. There's floods in Bangladesh. You are in Bangladesh with the people suffering. Your level of empathy and emotional implication is incredibly higher than anything you've ever lived with. So that's what is going to change for us in the way we interact with information. Now for brands, what does it mean? It means transparency. What I just talked about is transparency. Going from being told things to living these things for real or in an augmented way, being immersed into some kind of the reality of what they are is incredibly emotionally engaging. So brands will have to tell emotional stories, will have to be transparent. I mean, you see things, people will, if you sell fair trade coffee, customers might expect you in the future to have live webcams that let you go and see or actually people are working on this. So I see that brand and my glasses are taking me to, you know, somewhere in Peru where pe people are picking it up and I can see that they are treated really well, that, you know, the health and safety is respected. So I trust you, you'll have to be that transparent. So that's what XR and AR augmented commerce will change for us. Obviously AI, allows us to show us people that we can't and that don't exist um, and, and and we can't differentiate them from people that do exist. And that's that's like the opposite of transparency. Yes. So there's a huge ethical mission that comes with that. And and by the way, and, and that will drive social acceptability of the tech. If people don't trust that the tech is actually transparent, they will not accept the technology. So one of the big things, you know, AR companies are working on is social acceptability. How, how do you know these glasses are not normal glasses, they are our glasses? So when I'm looking at you, I can see your resume, I can see all your Facebook posts. So how do I make sure you are comfortable that we're in a balanced human connection here, that I don't know so many more things about you than you do? How do we signal this? What are the standards of safety, all these things? So you're right. There are a lot of things on the way to make this, this safe and socially acceptable. And, and I know that people on Facebook are working on, in Facebook are working on this as a primary mission. Like there's no version of this that comes and works without the ethical responsibility that goes with it. Let me ask you a guest question. Do you know how many cameras there are running at this moment in China uh, that do facial recognition? I have no idea. 100 million, one every 10 people. 626 million cameras that do facial recognition live in, in China. So you see on the one hand technology racing ahead and, and China is obviously the country to be looking at. And on the other hand, the, the let's say the big 
blocker or break uh, for very good reasons, which is, you know, protecting people, privacy. The, and, and obviously, I mean, I know you can't look into a mirror ball, but you're working on this all the time, like where things are going, what the big bets should be. Uh, and that's what our viewers also obviously ask themselves, where should I put my, my dollar? Um, what is your take on these two incredible forces, technological advancement, and on the other hand, governments and institutions, or maybe corporates self-regulating, putting the brake on things because it's just not ethical? Um, so I start with the second one, which is not my highest area of expertise, but one that I'm, I'm very uh, one passionate and to involve with because of you know where I work and what I do. We have to learn to live with more advanced technology and we have to make sure that technology remains here to serve the people and not people to serve the technology. And that's something that regulators have a huge role to play in and that's that's who I would look. Self-regulation is, is possible and you know good intention is great, but I think everyone welcomes re regulation and you've seen statements from uh, even from our <laughs> welcoming truly genuinely we yeah. welcome regulation. So that that's that's where it belongs and that's where it should belong to the people and the people will represent the people. But nobody else should decide for that. Um, to your other point, which is a, a very a lot more grounded. So sorry, we are going to go from philosophical to uh, a very grounded business conversation. Yeah. Okay. How do you cope with this? Uh, I guess that's the question, right? So if, so if you are a listener today, you know, a CMO in, in charge of a business, how do you cope with all this? Um, number one, it's hard. So it's really hard. It's hard for everyone. It's hard for me. Right? It moves all the time, you know, keeping up, you know, this new API, that thing with commerce. So uh, acknowledge this. It, it's really hard. What I've witnessed uh, throughout my career, and I, I've been doing things around online since 1999. I mean, I was... I was calling, I was working on the year 2000 bugs for those of you who are old enough to uh, <laughs> remember. That was my first job. So, um, And, you know, things are changing and people who are in charge right now, they're a bit overwhelmed. You know, if you are in senior leadership position of the company right now, your hard work, your knowledge, your business acumen, acumen your financial acumen, your human motivation acumen uh, brought you where you are. And now people come and talk about uh, tagging AI, data-driven decisions, uh, data management platform, two type platform. And, and, and so you're in that power position where you have to decide, you don't really have the code. You can't show that you're in that weakness position, so you, you will need help. Um, the first thing I would say is, one, you're not the only one. Every single, every single uh, leader out there has this problem to acknowledge it, get some help. Um, now, what needs to change practically in a business, organize. Sales and marketing are colliding. Sales, marketing, and e-commerce. There are a lot of companies out there where the sales team, the marketing team, and the e-commerce team are actually different teams. They all have different technology stack, different agencies, different KPIs that I would very, very strongly encourage everyone to look at roles and responsibilities. It's the hardest thing. Like it's management of change. We as leader, the only thing we do, like once you get, once you're a leader anywhere, the only thing you do is management of change, bringing people along to adapt and survive and thrive. That's very important. So look at who does what, what are the roles and responsibilities, 
don't be territorial, uh, build trust among these three entities around who's going to operate what side of the business with what SLA, very important. So organize for this is really important. Number two, the one thing you can do very practically, very fast is optimize for platforms. Remember vertical integration versus horizontal. I would definitely encourage everyone to go vertical right now. Feed the e-commerce platform, the digital platform, the social platforms with all the assets, product information, pricing, data they need to represent you in the most advanced manner, the best possible manners through the algorithm. Give them lots of pictures, lots of product descriptions, lots, lots of brand messaging, real-time pricing, real-time availability. So, so basically surrender to the big platforms. Yes. They, they are the big platforms. That's what you're Feed them. Like, organize yourself to feed them. One of the things I discussed with in, in some forum was, um, you know, everyone's running for data scientists. Data scientists are about horizontal integration. All these pieces of data, how do I make sense out of it? And it's really hard. First, there are very few talents out there. If you do hire data scientists, it's really like I couldn't lead them. I don't know what to tell these people. Right? <laughs> uh, so, and so it's really hard. But you need data architects. You need people that can put pictures, product descriptions, pricing, brand messaging in a database and plug that database through something that's called an API. The, the one technical word you need to learn is API, is application protocol interface. It's a pipeline. Just get lots of content in the pipeline and let the data science be done by the platforms. They will always be better than you at data science because there are more data scientists there than they will ever be with you. Yeah. yeah. So all optimize, like optimize, don't reinvent the wheel, optimize for the wheel. And then prepare, educate yourself, stay in touch. I think it's really hard to keep up, but if you're a marketer today, you know, there are things like uh, creative shops. So the big platforms are what's called a creative shop. What this team do is, you know, they have newsletters and they publish and they say, hey, we're going from pictures to video. We're going from, what well, it works better when you have five pictures than one. It works better when you have a video. It works better when there's lifestyle rather than product shots, all that things or, you know, and, the, and you can keep in touch with what is the best format? What is the best tone of voice for my brand to show up? to show up. So you're educated. Keep educating yourself a lot. Get some help. Now, the last point, be really, really clear on what you should do yourself, what you should what you should buy, what you should partner for, what you should do with the authors. Should you buy anything? Right now, like, I mean, listen, I'm not talking on behalf of Facebook. I'm talking about on, on my behalf with my experience. Would I buy a DMP now? Would I buy like a, an integrated What's solution? That a DMP? A data management platform there, mm -hmm. sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm using the, the generic term because I don't want to name brands, no. but there are some very, very famous SaaS brands around it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I would, like I say, I would say, I would focus on the core. What's my brand messaging? Where do I show up? What's the best format for me to show up? And how do I have as many assets and content chunk to feed all these platforms and let these platforms do the work of serving the right test and learn, right content at the right person at the right time. If it doesn't work, another one, another one, giving you feedback on how you should pivot your content so that you are most relevant to that. That's what I would do. I would not invest, I would not try to reinvent the wheel because there are 
tons of rocket scientists out there inventing the wheel. And if you wanna if you wanna compete with them, it's going to be really, really hard. As I said, the session is called Humanizing Growth, and, and that's that's what our study continues and even actually with COVID reinforces and it's accelerating is that the growth of performers are those that don't only focus on making as much money, as much profit in the short term as possible, but actually rather create value for all the stakeholders for the long term. All the stakeholders, I mean, our own people, um, our, 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 our consumers and customers and, and business partners, also our communities and the world, the planet that we live on, and the capital markets. We're talking a lot of tech here today, and, and there's actually one uh, person this week, uh, somebody in our uh, 100 leadership program, Kate Mackey, who works as CMO at EY, and she said, well, it's very clear what we see in our business. It's a tech-led world that, that people support the tech. Tech-led. Yeah? And, and, and whether we like it or not, in a lot of our decision-making, in a lot of uh, the, the Liberty Global uh, CEO for, for one of the opcos in uh, for one of the countries in, in Europe said exactly the same. It's about tech first in, in thinking where we invest and so on. And I think that's, that's just a reality that we can't go around. However, it remains extremely important to think of the human behind each of those stakeholder groups what is your advice from, from your perspective? You, you focus much on the commerce part. How do you keep the business, the work that you do, truly human-centric? So I would say this. As individuals, we are being brought with new tools. And we, we, are, we are communication animals, right? We're social animals as, as human beings. Now, the way we interact socially with each other has probably changed as much in the last five years as it has in the last 2,000 years. Yeah. So our generation right here, right now, we are probably learning to cope with it. So for us, it's, it's really important. I, I, I have two, two daughters, uh, you know, uh, uh, 17 and 13. And they look at influencers things and things online and they can like they can really, really differentiate when somebody's trying to do product product placements, whether it's 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 formalized or like they can actually identify from the behavior. Like they were born with this, they see this all the time. They can see what's commercial, what's not, what's genuine, what's not, a lot better than I can do. So I all this to say I'm hopeful that if you were born with this tech and this way of interacting, you are more nimble and clear about what's what, you know, around the question of. But one thing that we have to be mindful of is our attention. So as human beings, I always do this. Like I have a discipline. I don't look at my phone before I've had my coffee. I do not look at my phone. I do not look at the screen. And then because my attention, I'm going to jump into a tunnel of attention grabbing things if I don't discipline myself. And I think we have to do this. It's unfortunate because we have to actively think about it and manage it. But the only thing I would encourage everyone to do is manage your attention like you're managing your cash. It's your capital. It belongs to you. 
and you will have, uh, you know, you will have a lot of temptation to spend your cash. You will have a lot of temptation to spend your attention. Try to be as mindful as you can. You can't always be mindful. Like there are times I'll open that feed and just scroll to death, but like all in all, try to have some discipline around it. It's I like that a lot. The, the idea of, of managing your, your attention uh, like you manage your, your cash in this case or other things you truly um, care about. Um, and, and this will be hopefully more than cash, by the way. But no, I, I, I like the analogy. But um, I, I thought actually that, that you might start talking about, or was hoping maybe, uh, that you would talk about, let, let's say Facebook is a, is a company that is led or led, is, is dominated by, by tech people, right? I mean, coders, uh, data scientists, and, uh, and, and others. How do you keep these people? Because what I've always, I've worked for telco companies, et cetera, and it's always difficult to make these people, you, you talk about customer centricity and then where the actual innovation and so on happens, these people are just obsessed by what technology can do. What do you do in a company like Facebook to keep people and, and viewers that work in companies that are tech dominated? And I know there's quite a few there. What do you do to keep these people to ensure that what they do and their work is, is human-centric and is, is humanizing the growth of the company, but also of, the, of their clients. So in Facebook, it's really easy to be, to be transparent and fair with you. I mean, and take this from, so don't, this is not, again, an official Facebook statement. It's a statement. No, no, no. I'm not the right person to talk about you know, Facebook uh, policy and everything, but um, I joined Facebook, like, as you say, I already had 20 plus years of experience behind me of, you know, corporate America, major corporations and things like that. And I joined just after the uh, Cambridge thing. So I stepped in there and I, what I witnessed, I can only talk about my experience. In Facebook, it's really easy because Facebook is truly a purpose-driven company. Yeah. And the purpose of Facebook is helping people get to get together and, and empower them to build communities. And everyone at Facebook, when you come in, you're being told this is the mission. Everything you will do here will be optimized for serving that mission all the time. So, you know, you have an induction uh, period. We talk about the mission. We talk about the huge success we have, the huge responsibility we have, and how we carry this. And how all of the people working in there bear some of this responsibility. And so, um, and all the way up to, to Mark Zuckerberg that every every week as, as, a, as an employee chat, and it's a purpose-driven organization every step on the way, it's reminded and people join for this. So- And, and that helps them to put the, the, the consumer or the, the user front and center when they do the work is, is, is what you're saying. Yeah, when they exactly. There's, there's an obsession for uh, our mission, our responsibility, the other thing, just a fun fact, when you're a business person like me, you know, you talked about technology people, uh, you know, in, in mature businesses, business people rule the world. They make the decisions, you know, salespeople, PNL. In Facebook, uh, you know, I make a joke. Nobody could, could care less about what I think. You know, it's the engineers and the product guys and, and the data driven decisions. So, so it's also a humbling experience, but it's, it's a democratic form. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very special place. It's mission driven. So, here it's not too hard. I think it's a lot harder when you are in more traditional industries that have traditionally been 
less sustainable. Uh, diversity and inclusion. I'm like diversity and inclusion is my thing, but I have a, a really I care a lot for this. And Facebook, in Facebook, it's really easy to take care of this. In in more traditional places, it's 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 a lot harder because you know you have to optimize for that PNL, you make little margin. The way you do uh, your business and make your money is by optimizing and squeezing things. So I think it's actually a lot easier in the technology platform than in, in the traditional business. That would be my answer. What, what is the impact of COVID? And what do you see as the post-COVID? Yeah, what's here to stay? I think let's, let's focus on that. What's here to stay of the changes that we saw? So the changes that we saw, obviously people are going online, buying online, purchasing. So e-commerce, kickstarted. Everybody that had an e-commerce site sells more today and, and the share of e-commerce is, is growing. What will stay? People will buy e-commerce, but not everybody will win. It's like for advertisers out there, I'll talk to the advertisers and they know what I'm talking about. When you do an ad on Black Friday, any single ad will convert. So you can't use that moment to know if you are well-performing or not, because basically anything you put out there just sells. Well, this is where we are with e-commerce. If you have an e-commerce site and some kind of inventory of stuff that helps people spending their time in a better way through lockdown, you are going to sell. When we get out of this, a lot of people remain in that motion, not all of them, I would say, but a lot of people move to e-commerce or move to a primary e-commerce habit in lockdown will stay there, but the ones that will win are the ones with less friction, the ones with better assortment, better consistency, sometimes better sustainability, things like that. And the winners are very few and we already know who they are. So the big platforms will win. You will see a concept. There will be more people buying online and the winners will be the bigger platforms and you will see more consolidation in that one. I, I can guarantee you this. People will buy more on social and conversational commerce will carry on. Social commerce discovery, my prediction will be at least 20% of everything sold in five years from now. Major shift, major shift. And if, you don't, if you're not there for discovery, you're never there for conversion because discovery and conversion happen at the same time. Think about this. Lucas, you, you shared a lot of messages that, are, that, that I hope people took note of. Uh, don't hire data scientists, don't hire data architect. Uh, 25% growth on uh, discovery commerce in, in the next five years. Uh, many others that are super relevant. Um, Lucas, I want to thank you for a super inspiring hours. And, and like you said, we could have talked on for many. We will. Uh, and for the viewers, thank you very much. I wish you a great day, a fantastic weekend, and look forward to seeing you soon again. Lucas, thanks again. Thank you very much. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye.